passage when we went through Mark about four years ago. And uh, before studying it at that point, I really didn't like this passage. I didn't understand it, and it bothered me. It wasn't until spending a lot of time in it studying it that I realized how important this passage actually is. And I truly believe that you can't completely understand the cross without understanding Gethsemane. To be honest, there's still a mystery here that we won't be able to fully unravel this morning. And that's because we're dealing with infinite realities. Realities that are are beyond our human experience. In other words, there's no human experience, there's no illustration that can really help us understand Gethsemane. Let me put it this way, and I, I say this, I don't say this lightly. Take the most horrific event that you have ever gone through and put it aside because it doesn't compare. Like I said, I don't say that lightly. I've been around the church enough to see some of the the hardships that, that this church has had to go through in personal lives. But Gethsemane is beyond our experience. The best I can do this morning is explain the text. The Bible calls Jesus the man of sorrows. And I don't think there's a passage that that shows that better than this one this morning. So the context of this passage, we know we're in the last week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week. We just got done with the Last Supper. Jesus, in the Last Supper, started to establish the new covenant. But there is only one way to bring it forth fully, and that's going to be through his death. So there's three points I'd like to cover this morning. The first one is man's complete failure. The second one is Jesus' faithful obedience. And the third one is God's astonishing love. So let's start with man's complete failure. Look at uh, verse 39 again. Chapter 22 of Luke says this, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. Again, just after the Passover meal, after the Passover meal, they went, the disciples and Jesus went, as was custom, to the Mount of Olives. It's nighttime. This was normal for the week. It says in Luke 21, verse 37, that every day he was teaching in the temple, meaning during the day he would teach in the temple, but at night he went and lodged in the Mount called Olivet. So he left and would sleep in the Mount of Olives during the night. And I want you to think what's going on here. This is Thursday night again. They're walking to the Mount of Olives. They they finished the Passover meals. They left the upper room. And it was a huge disappointment. Remember a few weeks ago I said Jesus said in, in Luke 22, 14, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And we said that the the Greek there really could be translated, I desire with desire. He strongly desired to have this meal with his, his, his loved group of 12. Yet halfway through the meal, one of them gets up and leaves to betray him, to have him killed. The other disciples are still clueless as, as they have been throughout the whole three years of Jesus' ministry. And the night ends with them fighting, arguing about who is the greatest. 
You can almost feel the disappointment in Jesus in verse 38 where he says, it is enough. In other words, stop talking. But that disappointment gets worse. After the, the, the Passover, he took the disciples, the 11 now, because Judas has left, and he starts walking to the Mount of Olives. And during this walk, he has a conversation that's not recorded in Luke. It's actually recorded in Mark. So if you would turn with me, turn to Mark 14, verse 27. In Mark 14, verse 27... Jesus tells the disciples, you will all fall away. The Greek word for fall away is actually could be translated scandalous or scandalized. You will all scandalize. You will all sin. You will all forsake me. Jesus at this point knew very clearly that what the future held, that he would be going to the cross and he would be going to the cross alone. How do you know this? Well, partly scripture. Look at verse 27 again. It says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's a prophecy from Zechariah 13. And the main point of this prophecy, and Jesus quoting it, is that when the shepherd is crushed or when he is stricken, the sheep will be scattered. In other words, without Jesus, the disciples were lost. They were nothing. At best, evil rebels. At best, all failures. But, verse 28, but, there's, there's places in Scripture where that word is just placed perfectly, and this is one of them. Without Jesus, they're failures. Without Jesus, they're hopeless. But, after I am raised, I am going to go before you in Galilee. Just that little sentence right there. But after my death, there will be the resurrection, and I'm going to find you. And I'm going to use you to change the world. Without Christ, these disciples were nothing. They were failures. At best, fishermen, right? In Christ, they were victorious. Romans 8, 37 says, No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As I was studying and reflecting on this passage, I couldn't help but put myself in the disciples' place and and just think through how much of a failure we are without Christ. And Peter doesn't get it, of course. Look at verse 29. Peter says to him, even though they all fall away, I won't. (laughs) Like, I will not. Right? This is pride on Peter's part. Jesus already told Peter he was going to at this point. So the second time, Peter tells him the same thing in verse 30. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, being Peter, said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the rest of the disciples said the same thing. Again, pride. Jesus knows Peter will fail. He knows they all will fail. They all will fall away. They all will sin. They will all deny him, and he is going to the cross alone. Here's the point. Without Jesus, the disciples were hopeless. The disciples were still clueless. And without Jesus, we are just as weak, right? 
man's complete failure, and that is just contrasted with Jesus' faithful obedience. Jesus' faithful obedience. Look at verse 32 of Mark. And they went to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Gethsemane means olive press. It's at the Mount of Olives. This is nighttime. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, verse 33. This is the inner circle. We see that Jesus has the 12 disciples who are his, his closest friends, his, his disciples that he's been working with for three years. Uh, yet in those, there's three that get separated with Jesus as his inner circle, his closest friends, and that's Peter, James, and John. And began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 33 uses two words. It's three in English, greatly distressed and troubled. But in Greek, greatly distressed is one word, which means to be amazed, shocked, intense emotional state because of something causing great surprise or perplexity. Right? And then troubled means distress that follows a great shock. Sometimes when you translate from Greek to English, and I'm sure this is the case when you translate any language to another language, you lose some of the, the emphasis, some of the meaning. When these two words are put together, it literally means that Jesus was surprised by terror. Something happened so bad that it surprised Jesus, so bad that reflecting on it, 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 it caused extreme anguish. One commentator put it this way, the impact of these two words are incalculable and carries with it its own power to stab the reader wide awake. Jesus was surprised by terror. and This is what another commentator said. He asked, how could the second person of the Trinity, who, even in his human form, seemed to anticipate every possibility, be shocked? But he is. He's stumbling. He's dumbfounded. He's astonished. As he is on his way to pray, darkness and horror comes down on him beyond anything he could have anticipated. And the pain of it makes him feel as though he is crumbling on the spot. What happened? What happened? Look at verse 34. Jesus tells his disciple, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Whatever is going on here, whatever has happened in this moment, the stress, the dread, the agony, literally is almost killing him. Like even to the point of death, physically almost killing him, the thought of what is happening. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 22, verse 44. Luke doesn't spend a lot of time in this passage, but we know Luke is, is what? A doctor, right? A physician. And you see throughout the, the Gospel of Luke and Acts that, that he pays close attention to the, the physical effects and the physical body uh, a lot throughout the, two, the Gospel and, and Acts. So he doesn't tell us much, but he does tell us the physical effect of this anguish and stress that's going on in Jesus' life in this moment. Look at verse 44. It says this, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweats became great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
Like this is actually medically possible. You can be so stressed and anxious that your capillaries burst. And the sweat mixes with blood and, and the sweat becomes red in color. This also could just be a metaphor. We don't know, but look at verse 43. It was so bad, this agony, that there appeared to him an angel from heaven to strengthen him, strengthening him. This only happens one other time that an angel had to come down to heaven to take care of Jesus' physical body. And that was during the temptations when he went 40 days without food. That means this one moment brought such agony, such dread, that it affected him physically, equivalent to being 40 days without food. This one moment was so bad, it almost killed him. It was so bad that Jesus cries out in verse 42 saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This is the part of the the passage that just always bothered me. This always, like, just didn't settle right with me. And I couldn't put my finger on what exactly bothered me about this passage until I read a book by Timothy Keller, and and he just says it perfectly. So I'm going to read what what he says. Consider that all the gospel writers knew by the time they wrote their accounts that many of Jesus' own followers were able to faith death with remarkable calmness. In other words, when Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, it was many years after Jesus in Gethsemane. He's writing a historical account of years before. And at this point, many Christians have died for the faith. Luke records that when the Christian leader Stephen faced his executioners, his radiant face was like the face of an angel. And as they stoned him to death, he gently prayed for their forgiveness. Early Christian writers such as Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp pointed to the poise with which Christians faced torture and death. One historian writes that, that um, this was one of the ways Christian thinkers attempted to recommend their faith to pagan population. They argued that Christians suffered and died better than pagans. In other words, when they went to torturous things and were getting killed for their faith, they went in such a, such a faith. That the, that the Christian apologists were saying, look, they so know where they're going after death. Christians went to the lions singing hymns. They went into the flames with their hands raised high in prayer. But not Jesus. Jesus is facing death in a way that his followers did not. His face was not radiant like the face of an angel. He is not calm or poised or at peace. What is the reason then for the magnitude of Jesus' agony, the horror before his death? I mean, that's a question that bothered me. But I think the answer is found in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The answer is the cup. No martyrs ever faced the cup. The cup is God's wrath towards sin. This is a horror on infinite scales. The Old Testament in Isaiah 51 speaks of those who drink the cup of his wrath, the bowl of staggering. Ezekiel 23 says, You will drink the cup of ruin and desolation, and you will tear your breast. 
Jeremiah 25, 15 says, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Jesus is facing the cup, which is eternities of wrath. I mean, think about this. One sin equals eternity of wrath because we have sinned against the eternal God. That's why hell is, is eternity, to pay off the wrath that we owe, to pay off the sins that we owe. Jesus died for millions of sinners, times billions, if not trillions, if not more than that sins, times infinity. That's what Jesus was facing. I mean, nothing affected Jesus this way. 40 days without food, he's calm. Temptation from the, the devil, flawless, quoting scripture. Facing leprosy, reaches out and touches. Cities full of sick people, he heals them all. 20,000 hungry people, he feeds them with some fish and bread. Angry mobs, peacefully walks right through them. Legions of demons, one word, go, and they're gone. People wanting to kill him, he preaches with authority. Massive storms, he sleeps through them. Then wakes up and says, calm. Another storm, he walks through it on water. But one taste of the cup. One taste, one moment, he staggers. He falls to his knees, Mark says. He falls on his face. It shocks him. He sweats blood. One taste almost physically kills him. This is how scary God's wrath is. You know, it's not popular to preach on God's wrath. I think we should warn people. We have no idea what Christ saved us from. But Gethsemane gives us a glimpse. Do you know the most horrific part of God's wrath? Theologians call it the torture of the divine absence. It's separation from God. Think about this. Jesus cries out in verse 42 of Luke, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. In Mark, he, he literally calls out Abba, which we know means Daddy. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. In other words, he was crying out to his dad, help me. And what was God's answer? Silence. Separation from God is the most horrific part of hell. And we have no idea what this is like. We don't. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you are a Christian this morning, all the joy, the pleasure, the happiness you feel in this life are all reflections of God. It's God's felt presence. It's God's goodness and His glory. It's reflections of it. Hell lacks God's felt presence. And the ironic thing about the wrath of God, it's, it's, it's exactly what sinners want. The essence of sin is, God, leave me alone. I don't want your rules. I don't, I don't want you. Just leave me alone. Let me do it, my own thing. And that's what hell is. God leaving you alone. 
Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Men suppress the truth and, and exchange God for the, the images of this earth. And God's wrath is revealed because of that. Well, what is the wrath? Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. He says, if you want this, you can have it. You want nothing to do with me? Fine. You can have it. Timothy Keller writes, if you want freedom from God, you will quite justly get what you hope for, and it will be torment. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Right? Hell, this is the second death away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Listen, the worst part of hell is the lack of God's felt presence. But it's also the worst part of the cross. And we know the cross pretty intimately. If, we've, if you've grown up in the church and you've seen maybe the passion or if you had someone explain crucifixion to you and what Jesus went through physically as he went to the cross, it brings us to tears. It's horrific. Pastors, I think rightfully so, will go through sometimes a sermon of just explaining the torture that Jesus went through. But that wasn't the worst part of the cross. That was nothing. Right? The torture, the physical pain, the suffocation, right? We know crucifixion, you, you die through suffocation because you're hanging on the cross with, with your nails through your hands and your feet and the, the, the place that you're hanging, you can't breathe, so you have to sit up to take a breath. And how you eventually die days later is you're just too tired to sit up and take a breath. The ridicule of the people, the abandonment of his friends. Listen, that was not the worst part. The worst part was God the Father turning away from God the Son. We don't know what exactly happened there, but I know this. Jesus literally went through hell on the cross. And he got a taste of it in Gethsemane. But that leads to another question, right? I, I kind of got this as I was studying it the first time. All right, that makes sense, but why? All right, if he's going to go through it on the cross... Why a taste in Gethsemane? I was confused by this somewhat, right? I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, this torment in Gethsemane, only for a moment, too, because right afterwards, as we'll see in the next passage, Jesus right back to his normal self. The next passage, he's calm and collective. He's in control. We even see Jesus' strength and sovereignty in the next passage. The Roman army, Pilate, the, the priest, Judas, none of them were in control. Jesus makes it very clear that he's in control. So why this foretaste? Well, I believe the answer is found in a lesser-known doctrine that deals with Jesus' passive and active obedience. What's that mean? Well, in Jesus' passive obedience, he took the penalty we deserved. He died the death we should have died. But there's a problem with that. That just brings us, like, to zero. Right? We're infinity in debt to God, and he paid that price, and therefore we're at zero. 
right? We're just not sinners, which sounds great, but we're far from righteous and we're far from holy. Therefore, we need Jesus' active obedience. In Jesus' active obedience, Jesus lived the life we should have lived, and he was 100% obedient, 100% righteous. Therefore, when you put your faith in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to you, and your sin is imputed on him. This means that Jesus got the penalty we deserved, and we get the reward from God that he deserved. It's called double imputation. It's a theological term. In other words, if, when you put your faith in Jesus, our penalty is imputed or placed on Jesus. His righteousness is imputed or placed on us. He is treated as a sinner. We are treated as righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21 says this, For our sake he made, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what does this have to do with Gethsemane? Well, theologians believe that the taste of God's wrath in Gethsemane changed the crucifixion from just being passive obedience to also being active obedience as well. Without the taste, right, or with that taste, he knew. With that taste, he knew what the cross was going to be about. And now he had to make a choice. The best example I can, could think of as I was trying to think of an example to help explain this is um, Sarah's pregnancies. Right, the, her first pregnancy with Autumn, she, she had no idea what birth pain was like. Right? I mean, she's, she had people tolling her, and, and um, she knew somewhat. But after going through birth pain in, in, with Autumn, the second pregnancy with August, when we were considering getting pregnant, she was more informed. She knew the, the, the pain of choice, and she had to decide, is it worth it? Just a taste of God's wrath brought Jesus to his knees. It made him sweat blood. It almost physically killed him. And Jesus answers God in verse 42. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's amazing obedience. Right? That's faithful obedience. Which leads to God's astonishing love. Verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Jesus actually leaves this extreme anguish that he's going through to check on his friends. It's amazing to me. Remember his friends that he asked, hey, could you be here for me in this hour? He's checking on them. Jesus asked them to, to remain here and watch, which literally means stay awake. Be alert. And he goes and checks on them, and he says to them, Why are you sleeping? Could you not, in other words, be here for this one hour for me? Rise, that you may not enter into temptation. You even see him concerned. Guys, you need to pray that you don't fall into temptation. You even see in the other Gospels that Jesus makes excuses for them, saying, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
In other words, they want to, but they're not. Here's my guess. Listen, after tasting the, the, the cup, I don't know if this is, if this is true or not. It's clear to all, for everyone I've read, that this was uh, right after he taste, had a taste of this cup that the devil came and started tempting him, right? This is called the last great temptation. A lot of theologians call it that. And, and the, the temptation is don't go to the cross. The devil knew. He didn't want Jesus going to the cross. So with this taste, now, now Jesus knows. He's informed what he's doing. The devil's trying to tempt him to walk away from the cross. Why, here's my guess. Right? In this temptation, an aspect of this temptation, the devil is looking at these, these disciples that are sleeping and going, why would you go to the cross for them? They can't even stay awake for you. They're all going to deny you. One of your closest friends is left to have you killed. Why would you go to the cross for them? As I said, studying this passage this last week, I couldn't help but put myself in the shoes of the disciples. I could picture the devil saying, why would you go to the cross for him? Listen, you want proof of God's love? Look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the, men, and, and the man called Judas. You know, we don't see it in this one, but in Mark it says this. He, he tells the disciples rise, let us be going, see my betrayers at hand. In other words, he tells the disciples, get up, let's go. I choose the cross. I choose the cup. Listen, out of love, God the Son said, I will face the cup. And out of love, God the Father said, I will pour out my cup. John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, you don't know what you're facing in God's wrath. Put your faith in Jesus. This leads right into the application of this passage think what we can learn in this passage one thing is very obvious jesus god loves you right do you see it he literally went through hell for you romans 8 30 38 through 39 says for i am not or for i I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things presence, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, what more could the, the Father prove? Right? He loves you. Listen. If you're going through a hard time right now, then know there's some out there that are. If something's happened that, that made you go, God, do you truly love me? Look, that's a human response, by the way. Right, we see it with the, with the disciples in, in, the, in the storm as Jesus is sleeping. 
they wake up the disciples, and what did they say to Jesus? Or what did the disciples say to Jesus? Do you not care? It's a human reaction. We see it in Job. God, I know you're all-powerful. Do you love me? Why? I'm telling you this morning, if you're going through a hard time, God loves you. He's proved it. Look at, well, Romans 8, 31 says this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Trust God. Put your faith in him. Trust in his goodness. Trust in his power. Trust in his wisdom. When we doubt God's love, you know what? I I really think we're doubting more than anything else. We know God's love, and we know he's all-powerful, too. Most most people just know that. It's usually his wisdom. Why would you do this? This doesn't make any sense. Are you wiser than God? Trust him. I know that's hard, but look at the cross. The second thing I think we can learn is when temptation comes— pray. Pray. Jesus says in verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He's telling the the disciples, pray. Temptation's coming, pray. And that's exactly what he did. It's exactly what he modeled. And I think, honestly, in Gethsemane, we can learn from Jesus' prayer. There's two things that kind of uh, summarize Jesus's prayer. The first thing is that Jesus was brutally honest, right, wasn't he? This is hard. God, take this away from me. I, I don't want to go to the cross. He was brutally honest with God. At the same time, he was completely submissive. Yet your will, not mine, be done. If this is what you want, I, I trust you. Theologians or there's a theologian that uh, wrote, and I think this is just beautiful, so I, I, I wrote it down. It says this, The basic purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to mine, but to mold my will into his. When temptation comes, pray. And I think the last thing, and there's multiple things we can learn, but the last thing I saw in this passage is that Jesus is obedience is an example. And I titled the second point of the sermon, Jesus's faithful obedience on purpose. It was faithful obedience. Look at verse 42. You're still in Luke right now. He knelt down and prayed, and verse 42 says, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's a prayer. And Jesus is faithfully obedient. Think about the temptation, right? In the dark, extreme pressure, extreme temptation, alone, all his friends are asleep, we're not there, we're about to leave him, about to abandon him. 
And Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How could Jesus be so, so obedient? Right? How could Jesus choose the cross after that, that moment of, of terror? Well, I want to be clear, and, and I hope we can grasp this. It wasn't out of self-will obedience. He didn't just grit his teeth and say, all right, God, if this is what you want, I'm doing it. It was out of faithful obedience. Jesus had faith that what God was asking him to do was best. Even in that moment, it didn't make sense. And I know this because Hebrews 12.2 tells us exactly why Jesus went to the cross. Hebrews 12.2 says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. In other words, Jesus saw a reward on the other side of the cross. And that's faith. Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith is impossible to please God. In other words, if you can obey without faith and it doesn't please God, only faithful obedience pleases God. So what is that? Because anyone who comes to him must believe, it's the same word for faith, must have faith, two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That there's a reward on the other side of obedience. There's a reward on the other side of the cross. And what was that reward? According to Hebrews 12.2, joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, when he was tempted in the garden, he told himself, I am trusting you, God. This is what's best. In the long run, it's going to end in joy. In the long run, it's going to end in joy. I don't know how, but I'm trusting you. That's our example of faithful obedience. I think this is the same thing it's saying in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It says this, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, do what Jesus did, right? Well, what is that? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, when he came down as a human, he didn't say, no, I'm a God. I'm not going to come down in human form. He let that go, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Right? And he was saying, this is hard. This is hard. But God, I'm going to be obedient because I trust you. And what happened? Well, verse 9, Therefore, because of his obedience, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Obeying can be hard sometimes. Right? Obeying can be hard. But God promises joy on the other end of it. And I want to be clear, it's not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. He doesn't promise riches. He doesn't promise wealth. He doesn't promise health. He promises joy on the other end of obedience. And it takes faith in the middle of that temptation to say, no, God says this, and there's joy over here, and this is going to lead to destruction. 
And Jesus is our example, Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Listen, if you're trying to overcome some sin out of pure willpower, you're going to fail. And if you succeed, you're not going to glorify God in it. The only way you will consistently choose obedience is if you truly believe you have faith that obedience will bring more joy, more pleasure, and more happiness in the long run. That's faith. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Hebrews 12, 2, For the joy that was set before me endured the cross. In other words, Jesus in the garden tells his dad, I do not want to go to the cross. Everything in me is screaming, don't go to that cross in my flesh, in, in my body. But I trust you. I have faith that what you are asking is best. That there is a reward on the other end of the cross. That obedience will, in the long run, lead to joy. That's faithful obedience. It's faithful obedience. And without faith, according to Hebrews 11.6, it's impossible to please him. Right? Jesus is our example. I want you to pay attention to how much the Bible talks about joy when you read through it. Read Philippians. Just underline the word joy if you mark in your Bible. Every single time you see joy, rejoice. Read through that. Why did Paul go through everything he went through? He'll tell you, right, in Philippians. You know, Paul lived one of the, the hardest lives, right, for Christ. Yet I believe Paul was the most joy-filled person one of them that's ever lived on the face of this planet. Just read Philippians. It comes out. Right? That's faithful obedience, not self-willed obedience. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, this is a heavy passage, Lord, I know. It's been on, weighing on me this whole week. Lord, I think it displays your justice, which is, which is scary because of how, how much of a sinner mankind is, Lord, and, and the wrath that, that is poured out on the ugliness that is sin, Lord, is, is scary, Lord. Yet in that scariness, Lord, your love is so displayed. And how much you love us, Lord, that you would send your son to pay that price for us, and we get a glimpse not just how horrible the price is, but how ugly our sin is. Right? If that's the price, then our sin is ugly. Yet your love and grace is shown. God, I'm humbled by that. Lord, help me follow in your son's footsteps. Lord, I feel the sin that's in my heart, the flesh that is attached to me, that that wants to do its own thing, Lord, the weakness that I have, Lord. When temptations come, Lord, give me the faith, Lord, to trust you that, that choosing obedience is always choosing what will bring the most joy, Lord, and the greatest glory to you. Help me with my pride, Lord, where I think I can choose obedience just out of my own willpower. 
Help me humble myself, Lord, where I follow you and trust you through everything. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray that, that we're known for faithful obedience, that we point to you. Every time we obey and people come say, well, why are you doing things different? Because I trust my Lord and that's where joy is found. Lord, I pray that that's our answer and it's just apparent that we love you and trust you so much, Lord. Help us to be that church, Lord. I thank you for this time, Lord. Be with us as we go our separate ways. Your son's name, amen.